Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Tale as old as time. <laughs> it is Beauty and the Beast week. Yes, it is. Exactly. It was a record-setting March <laughs> opening and the seventh largest domestic opening of all time. Song is old as rhyme. Hollister, I have to thank you for the voicemail you left me on my phone <laughs> singing that very ditty. I think I might turn it into my new ringtone. You know what? You probably should pay me if you're going to do that. I think Disney should take your song and add I it to know, all their mega merchandising Forget, marketing you know, moves. Angela Lansbury or Celine Dion. Screw it. I could definitely have done it. But anyway. <laughs> okay. So before we get going on that, we have a couple of things from this past week. You want to start us off? Yeah. Two bits of exciting news. In the U.S., Hidden Figures has now made more money than the latest Star Trek, X-Men, and Bourne films. And it played in fewer theaters. I love that little factoid. I know. I love that factoid. And you know what? Uh, You know, that's why it's great to be a woman today. Good news for everybody. That's a really, really important statistic to start putting out there. So glad you found it. Excellent work. Americans are looking for good stories. And The Good Fight has been renewed for a second season by CBS All Access. I think that's great news. And I know you're really happy about that. And now that I love it, it's one of my top three from this season. I couldn't be happier too. And did you see that your guy, um, Mr. Alba, is back? Going, coming, coming back shortly. Oh, Idris Elba is coming back. Um, what's he yes, coming back in? He's going to be on Showtime, and uh, the name of the of the series is Gorilla, oh. and it's going to premiere April sixteenth. It's just a month away at nine p.m. and it'll premiere in the U.S. Um, and U.K. at the same time. Wow. Yeah, it's a six part series. We know he does very well in series. I think he grows on you in a series. So I'm glad he's doing it. So you might want to check that out. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. Okay, well, I did go see um, another movie this week. I saw Eagle Huntress. I'm assuming you didn't go with anyone from the Audubon Society? (laughs) I did not. I went with my cousin Sarah, actually. And she loved it as much as I did. And I will also say that even if you're not going to go see the movie because it's not playing in that many places, you should go to YouTube and listen to Sia who sings Angel by the Wings. So Eagle Huntress is a documentary about a 13-year-old who trains to become the first female in 12 generations of her family uh, to become an Eagle Huntress. Otto Bell directed, and it turns out she wins the entire annual Eagle Huntress events. And it's so funny to see the chiefs who, before she goes, saying, you know, she doesn't belong there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there was controversy around this because it's touted as she was the first girl to ever become an eagle huntress, and that is actually not accurate. There were some people who um, who happened to be female who are eagle huntresses, so that's not totally accurate. And I just wonder, why did they have to say that? Why couldn't they just say that she was the first in her family of 12 generations to become one? Because her story is so amazing, and it's the cinematography around it is absolutely breathtaking, and the simplicity, it was it, to come off Patterson. You remember I talked about Patterson last mm-hmm. week, that he lived an incredibly simple life where every day he did exactly the same thing. And when you look at these nomad uh, tribes in Mongolia and how they live their life, there's something to be said for the simplicity of it and the beauty of it and how they have time to contemplate both. And uh, it's a really, really great documentary, and it's wonderful to take a uh, an American young girl to see if it's still out there, or I'm sure it'll come to Netflix soon. 
Because it's a story that should be told, and it's a story that says you can do whatever you want to do. You just have to work hard to do it. So it's a great, great movie. I think you'll really, really like it. Okay, so now we're going to move to our list of six this week, which we thought would be really fun to sort of mirror. Tale as old as time. (laughs) And to do uh, remakes of movies. So do you want to start us off? Okay. This one immediately sprang to my mind. The 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, starring Rene Rousseau. Oh my God, what a great one! I love that. Oh my gosh. For no other reason, just to see how much the city of Boston has changed, which new buildings have come up since they made the original with Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. And when I saw the remake, I went back and watched the original. And I'd always heard so much about Steve McQueen, you know, in Cheryl Crow lyrics and all this. I thought the original was going to blow me away. And I, I know this is perhaps blasphemous to say, but I thought it was kind of a bit of a snoozer. Yeah, I think the, I think the remake is much better. I mean, I will give it to Faye Dunaway that she made Chess look erotic. That was an amazing scene. But otherwise, I think the remake had it all over the original. Well, the other thing about the remake that's so cool is the technology that was brought into it and how he did the great heist. And I, I just, it was, it was brilliantly devised and whoever wrote it plot fabulous etc so i agree i think the remake on that one's a lot quicker yeah what did you think of the the lead in the remake did you like her renee russo i thought she was great yeah she's a model turned actress i sort of thought she was yeah i don't know i don't know that she you know she certainly doesn't sit there with julia roberts or you know jessica lang or you know uh some of the some of those larger names. I don't know. I thought it was a very interesting portrayal of a romance of a couple over 40. And I thought they kind of showed up all the 20-somethings in terms of what they could learn from them. Excellent choice. Well, I'll sort of parallel yours with Sabrina. Oh. The remake of Sabrina. Ford? Yeah, the 19... Yeah, the 1954 Billy Wilder, which was with Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn. And then the remake was with Harrison Ford and Julie Armand. And I actually liked the remake better. I did. I'm sure you probably didn't, right? Tell the truth. I didn't even like Harrison Ford in the bowler hat. I thought he looked like Charlie Chaplin gone to the dry cleaners. Harrison Ford doesn't wear a bowler hat. Doesn't he wear that little, what do you call it, that little hat? Uh, He wears a baseball hat. Do you mean that? No, in the remake of Sabrina, where he's going off to his business meetings. No, he doesn't wear a hat. Are you sure? There is no hat. <laughs> O'Toole. Really? No what hat. What am I thinking of? Yeah, really. And I've seen it a lot of times. Trust me, there's, there's no hat. There's no scene where he's wearing a little hat with a suit and he, has, no. he pulls up in an expensive car. He doesn't wear a hat. There is no okay. hat. Moving along from the hat, I did Sabrina. What's your next one? Okay, I'm going to go with High Society. Great. The 1956 remake of The Philadelphia Story. I have heard among this clan You are called a forgotten man Is that what they're saying? Well, did you ever? What a swell party this is And And I loved the original with Cary Grant, James Stewart, Catherine Hepburn based on the play that was written for Catherine Hepburn to help revitalize her career which is odd to think of now because Philadelphia Story came out in 1940, but she'd already had some flops. High Society, though, you know, making it into a musical version with Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, Frank Sinatra. I loved that one, too. Okay, I am going to move to The Parent Trap. The original was with Haley Mills, and uh, Lindsay Lohan did the the remake of that. Mm-hmm. And she actually does a little homage to Haley Mills in the elevator by singing Let's Get Together, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Dennis Quaid. And you know who was great in that, who has since passed away? Natasha Richardson. Yeah, a really, really strong performance by her and loved her mothering and the way it all played out. And I I just, it's a fun remake is what it is. Of course. Fun remake. Brought to us by Nancy Myers. And there you go. You know, well, we know I love her. So, and what's your last one? Last one around the pike. I had to really stretch to get a third one. Does that mean you don't have one? <laughs> I'm going to go for partial credit. You might slap it down as an adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, give me a shot. Roxanne with Steve Martin. Oh, I don't think it's a No, I think that totally counts. And I love that really? choice. Why don't you like well, that choice? I mean, yes. Why don't you like Cyrano that? Cyrano de Bergerac. I'd like to say that I just loved the original in French, but I really enjoyed Roxanne. Uh, well, that's because Steve Martin is Steve Martin, which, by the way, is a perfect lead into my last one. You ready? Okay. Okay. The last one I'm doing is Birdcage, which oh. was, you know, a remake of Le Cage Faux. Uh-huh. Um, which was done in 1978. Okay. Now, what's um, the Steve Martin connection is, did you know he was originally cast as to play Armand? You no, know? I did not know that. <laughs> yes, he was. Wow. He was. Yeah. Now, I've got a couple of little bits of trivia as I was looking into this this week. It was so fun. So, you know, so originally he was cast as Armand and Robin Williams was supposed to play Albert. And Robin Williams' wife at the time said... I don't want you playing that part. It's too much like Mrs. Doubtfire. And so um, you should try to play Armand. So Robin Williams asked uh, Mike Nichols, who, of course, directed it, if he could do that. And Mike Nichols switched him. And um, and so that's why he played it. But also, um, there's such it's such a cast. Mike, Mike Nichols, of course, directed it. Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Gene Hackman, and then Hank Azaria, who plays Spartacus. Do you remember Spartacus in it? No. I remember Spartacus okay, I with Kirk have, Douglas. Yeah, no, this is different. So Spartacus was their sort of houseman, and he was originally supposed to be a very minor role, but he was so strong that they increased his role as they continued production because he was so good. But this was, of course, Mike Nichols' big comeback. You know, people thought that he was done with uh, with film and that he was sort of a has-been director. And so after he showed the final cut, uh, to his editing team on Martha's Vineyard. He was on Martha's Vineyard. They all had this like celebration meal. And here's what he said. He said it. He said, I was very emotional and I became very angry. I couldn't speak all through the lunch. He said, the film was so good, so strong. I realized I had no inkling of my anger at the people who had written me off. My reaction instantaneously was F you bastards. You thought I couldn't do this anymore. Well, look at this. And it really was touted as an amazing, amazing film. I, I, you know, I, I can't run across it and not finish watching it. I just think that so much talent and both Nathan Lane and Robbie Williams loved to improvise. So he made this rule that the first take, the first two or three takes, had to be strictly to the script. And then he would promise them that he'd do five or six takes where they could just take off and do all their improvisation, which a lot of it turned out to be uh, used. But he just was afraid he wasn't going to get the footage he needed. So he made them do that, that round first. And apparently, I don't know if you remember this, but everybody will remember in the kitchen, Robin Williams slips on the shrimp soup. And he falls, and that actually happened. It wasn't in the script. He just slipped and fell. And they, yeah. So Spartacus, (laughs) you think he's he you think he's crying because he's so upset because they're so mad at him about the soup, but in reality, he's laughing. 
And he just couldn't stop laughing. So they continued and made it look like, you know, he just pretended he was crying. And also your Christine Baranski's in it. I think it was Mm -hmm. one of the first times I've seen her on film, actually. So that's our list of six for this week. And now we're going to move into... Tale as old as time. You know, Hollister. I think I'm getting better as I. I think we're having a convergence this week. You know, vehicles that we've adapted from the original French versions, because Beauty and the Beast started out as La Belle et la Bête. It's a French story. Yeah, well, that was done in uh, in 1756, um, but it was actually, and uh, you know, it really, really comes with. It's not really a fairy story, but it's a classic myth, you know, of Cupid and Psyche. Mm-hmm. You know, Psyche's beauty incites the anger of Venus, who commands her son Cupid to punish her, and steady is smitten, and so and so it goes. So it really started out even before that as a Greek myth. And you do find a lot of these plot points in operas, for example, like the Magic Flute. You have that. Same same enchantress yep. with the hooded cloak yep. and the rose and turning. Well, so before before we get to the movie, though, we do have to talk about the issues surrounding it and the cer- certainly the feminist point of view. There's a theory that in the mid-1700s, one of the reasons they turned it into a little fable to be read to young girls or girls just going into puberty was because they were often married off by their families to older men who were very frightening to these young women. Oh. And that it was told to them as a story that could point out to them that maybe you can't look at the outer shell of somebody, that you'll be able to find kindness, et cetera, inside. And there there are lots of feminist positions on this that say that that's the point of it in the mid-1700s was to, um, to quiet the girls so that they could look at the man they were going to have to marry and say, okay, maybe he's a really good guy and I'm going to fall in love with him later. Now, in these original versions, was Belle also so brainy? Or did that come later, that she was always reading a book? No, that... Well, she wasn't even as brainy in 1991 when it came out. But I you know, do she remember reading quite, books, at least. Yeah, she was reading books, but she wasn't the brainiac that, that uh, Emma Emma Watson made her become. So, there, so there's a, there is a feminist issue right now surrounding this movie, and Emma Watson has addressed it in a number of interviews, in that, in actuality, Beast imprisons her and keeps her against her will and then she falls in love with him and is that a Stockholm Syndrome situation like is this something that should be celebrated as a great love story when in truth um, she was imprisoned and while he let her go it's still it still is a hostage situation yes and uh, yeah it is you know it is and there is that piece of me that thinks you know, it is hard when you take situations like that and you romanticize them with a happy ending when that really is never the case, generally. And yet, I read an article a long time ago that was very interesting because it was asking why are some of these movies so popular where the love interest is a beast or a vampire or an alien? And they posited that it was because those characters, because they weren't fully human, they weren't as threatening to girls. I, I totally get that. But in this case, she's locked up. Oh, I totally she's agree. I totally yeah. agree. And the prospects yeah. in her village weren't that great either. Well, it, no, they weren't. And while, you know, Kevin Klein, who plays her father, is a wonderful, wonderful man, there is a point where when we romanticize these things, it's part of the problem, not the solution. So, O'Toole, I'm just so torn between 
you know, loving the fable of the story and then my concern about the message about fixing bad boys, et cetera. I mean, help me through this. Do you have anything for me? (laughs) I got to tell you, when it comes to Hollywood movies in general being normative towards who women should love, it's not like a whole spate (laughs) of movies comes to mind. When I think about Forrest Gump or regarding Henry, where Annette Bening is supposed to love Harrison Ford more after he's been shot in the head, or knocked up with Catherine <laughs> oh Hagel, God. where she's supposed to be in love with a stoner who's unemployed and lives with his mother and can't fit in the treehouse. I just, I, I can't say. All right, well, that, you've got a point. You've you got know, a point. like the beast. Wait, and I, wait, there are, you're right. There are so many of the, yeah, we're supposed to fix all these guys, right? I mean, they're all, you know, this whole slacker genre where you're always supposed to love the guy that's kind of become more and more well less and less appealing as time goes on i i don't know it's not like our that well, hollywood wait, is... even if you go to gray's anatomy you know mm-hmm. mcdreamy really screwed her over <laughs> yes and she loved him forever you're right you're right or you're right i'm Alex. sorry yeah. he's got he's got a rap sheet and a rest record and you're supposed to know that underneath know. he's the soft emotional soul you're right and, we, and they didn't give Glenn Close one inch when she fried a rabbit. I just and say. Michael Douglas was really no prize in that movie uh, either. No. Annie Archer was ready to take You're him right. back. You know? You're right. You I know mean, what? And they didn't give her one inch. Nobody tried to make Glenn Close a nice person. You know, I mean, Robert Redford kidnapped Faye Dunaway in Three Days in the Condor, for heaven's sakes. And people thought, well, isn't that romantic? I'd like to think that we've made progress, but I'm ready for them to bring back Gregory Peck. You know, if we could have another Atticus Finch, I'm all in. But I'm not going to say Beauty and the Beast is a worse fable for telling girls and all this other stuff coming out of Hollywood. Okay, but that helped. You helped me. You made me. I, you I know probably what? depressed that, you even more. Can it's I just a, say that should not have made me feel better, but on some sick O level, it did. You're it's right. sick O level. I know because it's, you know, it's not just this movie. It's the whole industry. It's the whole. You're right. Um, yeah, well, okay, that's why I'm more really screen. But all right. But that's why it's complicated. That's why we need Nancy Meyer. But that's why I also love Dan Fogelman's This Is Us, because all of the people on that show ultimately are good. They're good people. Yeah. Yep. You know? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I will thank you for helping me to feel a little better about Beauty and the Beast, but terrible about the world at large. Thank well, you. Well, no. No, I'm just depressed. I've come for my father. He's a thief. Come into the light. <gasps> I absolutely loved the movie. I don't know if you did or not. You know, I, I thought there were lots of problems with it. Um, and one of them is that they spent way too much money on it, making it much more complex when it would have been prettier, better simple, maybe. I think they had to spend a lot of money on it, though. Well, to make it the blockbuster that it has well, become already? Well, I mean, already, it's definitely maybe? the Disney marketing machine yeah. in full throttle. But when you think about the 1991 animated movie, which was the first feature-length animated movie ever to be nominated for Best Picture. It wasn't until 10 Mm -hmm. years later they even introduced the Oscar category of Best Animated Film. But that movie, you know, it won two Oscars for Best Song, Your Beauty and the Beast, Best Original Score, both going to Alan Menken, who has won eight Oscars and did the, the music for this version. But even though there's this trend in taking these animated films and making them into live action movies like Cinderella, featuring another Downton Abbey alum, I think you have to do something really huge to justify making it into a live action movie. Because why, why bother then with a movie that was already kind of perfect as it was? 
Well, you know, first of all, the reason you bother is because when you have Emma Watson, yes, and you have this the cast, you know, Stanley Tucci and Kevin Kline. Mm-hmm. You know, voices are not as strong as when you actually get to see the people, although you don't see Tucci till the end. But, um, but you know, Emma Watson is part of the success of that film. Now, she gave up, as you know. She was slated to do La La Land. They developed that role for her. They did develop that role for her, and, and she turned it down because she was, was in this role. And this was one of her favorite movies that she saw as a child, so she really did want to do the part. But um, I think one of the reasons they do that is for that reason, that it does become then, you know, the blockbuster. You know, Harry Potter, all those people from Harry, Harry Potter are going to go to see her mm-hmm. in this as well. And they probably did this past weekend. But we have to go back to the music because for me, I always felt the Titanic would not have been the blockbuster success that it was without the song by Celine Dion. You know, in other words, when that song came out and was played and played and played and played and played, (laughs) I I mean, I can't remember that 18 month period where I didn't hear it at least twice in a day. I think that was one of the reasons that it romanticized the movie so much because I, you know, I found that movie very long and somewhat tedious in parts, and I'm not sure it would have been the blockbuster without it. And the song, you know, Tale as Old as Time, you know, has to be talked about. And you mentioned that Mencken, um, that he won the awards, but really he won it with, you know, with Howard Ashman, who died of AIDS. Yes. Yeah, he died of AIDS before Beauty and the Beast came out, but he was very sick with AIDS uh, while he was actually writing it. And interestingly enough, that was the time when AIDS was not public and it was not cool to have AIDS. And on the way home from the Academy Awards for um, The Little Mermaid, which they had just won, he told uh, Mencken that he was sick. And uh, so... But some of the words in the song, you know, tale as old as time, true as it can be, barely even friends, then somebody bends unexpectedly, just a little change, small to say the least, both a little scared, neither one prepared, beauty and the beast. Uh, There are people who were close to him that said these words were very personal to him because he knew that many people had to bend to accept him in his his dying year as he was writing this. And... um, it's funny because one of the things they did is they dedicated um, the movie to him. And basically it said, you know, to our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful. So I thought it was worth mentioning that, you know, you can't look at this music and not think that the music is part of the critical acclaim, you know. And now that they've got, you know, new people doing the music for it, uh, you know, that the song on YouTube, the new song on YouTube has had almost close to, I think, 4 million views already. I absolutely agree with you, Hollister. The music is the reason to go see this movie, and I saw it in 3D. I just thought, I'm going to Did you wear the glasses? I wore the glasses and everything. I thought, I want to give myself over to the experience of this spectacle, because it's... It's not. I mean, you know, here we are talking about the remakes and how many have already been done of Beauty and the Beast. There was a live-action remake done just in 2014, with Vincent Castle from My King and Léa Seydoux, again, a French version from Blue is the Warmest Color. And the music, though, of this version, 
is the reason to go. Like I said, I was hesitant because when you take something that's so famous as an animated movie like The Grinch and you turn it into a live action movie with Jim Carrey, I don't really feel the need to go. But this part was just made for Emma Watson. I know. So it's like a Broadway musical or an opera, especially when you have talents like Audra McDonald, who's won five Tonys operatically interpreting a tale as old as time. It makes it worthwhile, especially in 3D. Oh, how divine, glamour, music, and magic combine. Okay, once again, you and I part ways here. I thought um, Emma Watson wasn't strong enough on the page. I felt that um, that she's too soft-spoken. Uh, she actually trained for three months in horseback riding, singing, and dancing before it started. She's not classically trained during well, her she lifetime. she did go to a school for the theatrical arts studying singing and dancing yeah. and acting. Well, she said this is the first time she's ever done those things on the stage and that, you know, she was, you know, she was a little timid about it is her, the word she used. And I found her not owning the image when she was on the page. So when she's dancing with the beast, I saw the beast in a stronger position than I saw her. So, and I needed her, especially if she was going to be this force of nature, young woman who was very different from all the other young women because of her strength. I needed her to be stronger on the page and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't see it. So I, I didn't, I found her to be a little bit of one of the weaknesses. I mean, she's very pretty and sweet, but when she's like, when she's putting the, the, um, you know, she's made the dress into what, what'll be her escape route out the window. And when she's throwing that thing out the window, she just looked like, you know, a fragile flower doing it rather than this, you know, girl who's got her strength together and forcefulness. And so I, I found her to be one of the weaknesses of it, actually. I, I thought she was yeah. great in the role. Yeah. I thought she was convincingly like could love the beast. I thought they did a really good job of showing how smart she was helping Kevin Klein out to fix the clock or, you know, to break out of the horse-drawn carriage to go save the beast. I thought she interacted with all these objects that come to life in a very authentic way. And it's interesting because the director, Bill Condon, who brought us the Twilight movies and Dream Girls, he pointed out that Emma Watson has always lived in a world of CGI because of the Harry Potter movies. So when you need an actor who can act opposite a tennis ball that's just marking the place yeah. of where they're going to put yeah. in the CGI effects, she's your go-to person. It's amazing to think that when she was offered the part in Harry Potter, she was only nine. I mean, nine she was literally I know. Can still you imagine? losing yep. her baby teeth. Yeah. I thought she was stronger in the Harry Potter roles than in this one. And in fact, when I when she was working on the clock, I looked at the clock, not at her. Again, I didn't think she owned the stage. But the other thing is, do you remember when she runs to the top of the hill I'm like, are we in The Sound of Music? Are you really going to try to reenact that, you know, that moment in The Sound of Music when she runs to the top of the hill and spreads out her arms with the glee of the beauty that she's surrounded by? It was exactly the same thing. And I thought, no, 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 no. It's funny because in that scene, I looked at the castle and I thought, mm -hmm. that looks suspiciously like the Disney castle. <laughs> I wonder if they're filling this with subliminal messaging so we all go <laughs> out and buy the merchandising. Okay, but let's look at Watson's numbers, okay? So she took $3 million up front for this role, okay? Mm -hmm. Um Okay, now she if the if the movie cleans up and it looks like it already has, so uh, 
I think it, I can't remember what it needs to do. If it grosses 759 million worldwide, then she's going to get 15 million more. So her take on that, the upside of her take would be $18 million. Now, if it goes to almost a billion dollars um, worldwide, then you're talking about Tom Cruise numbers. And so everybody's writing these numbers as if this is a, a load of cash, when the truth is, I don't think it's such a big take. Do you? <laughs> well, on, on a billion to dollars? anybody else on the planet, it's a lot of money, but she's definitely worth every penny. I mean, she's got well, 24 exa- million followers on Twitter, just about. Exactly. Yeah. She is uh, her own, you know, broadcasting station, really. Okay, but it, again, this, you know, so, and, and I just wish we wouldn't take so much time to celebrate that, which really, when you compare it to her counterpart, if it gets to $759 million, all she gets is a $15 million bonus. That's, I mean, that's, that's 2%. I mean, it's nothing. So I just think it's really interesting that once again, we're going to celebrate her as making all this money, but the truth is it's not as much as her male counterpart. See, and I wasn't even celebrating her for making all this money. I was celebrating her talents as a singer yeah. and a dancer and an actress. But yeah. she's chosen well, some she really went, you know, But also projects. she doesn't sing. She's not singing. She didn't sing that much. She sang just as much as anybody else. There goes the baker with his tray like always. The same old bread and rolls to sell. Every morning just the same. Since the morning that we came to this poor provincial town. Good morning, Belle. Good morning, Monsieur Jean. Have you lost something again? I was surprised they didn't use her in the song Beauty and the Beast, you know. Oh, I'm not. Because in the animated version, I just remember Angela Lansbury singing as well, Mrs. Potts. And she didn't want to sing it, by the way. Angela Lansbury at the time asked not to sing it because she felt her voice wasn't strong enough to carry the tune because she was a little too old and she felt that it faltered. But with Angela Lansbury, I think her voice brought so much experience to the role. So when you've got Angela Lansbury, who was performing on Broadway into her 90s, singing A Tale as Old as Time, I believe it. Emotionally, it's so true. Well, that's the way I feel about my voice. (laughs) Ever just the same. Ever a surprise, ever as before, ever just as sure as the sun will rise. Because I was watching the credits in 3D, which gave me an extra thrill. The very last (laughs) song played, I thought, wow, Dan Stevens really does have a beautiful voice. And then I realized it was Josh Groban. Yeah, of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you know, but not a stupid thing to do. You got to go. You know, that's what I, I I thought La La Land should have done was gotten stronger voices in well, the in the songs. Yeah, you know, they wanted Emma Watson, but she turned them down for this. Yeah. She also turned down Cinderella. But when you look at what it took to stage this production, I'm kind of blown away. I used to look at animated movies and knowing that they could be 24 frames a second to get Uh something to move in an animated film, I used to think, wow, that's a lot of work. And it is. Even with the assistance of computers nowadays, it's a lot of work. Just look at the number of animators listed in the credits. But watching this live action version, I started getting overwhelmed going, wow, that was a lot of work, the costumes and the sets and the wolves and the CGI. And I heard 8,400 candles were used in this remake. It's like the TV show Victoria, where they used tens of thousands of candles uh, to film it also. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, now, I also had a problem with the Beast. Can I tell you my problem with the Beast? So I went back and watched part of the animated version. Mm-hmm. The Beast facial expressions in the animated version are much richer, but because they put so much facial hair and stuff on him, the only real expressions we got to see were through his eyes, and he did a great job. I'm not taking that away from him, but if they could have made him a little... If they could have let his whole face be part of what he was feeling... Um, you know, like when, when in the animated version, when the beast is rolling on the ground and the, and the birds are all over him and then she throws a, a snowball at him, we get to see, you know, sheer joy on his face with the birds and then the snowball arrives and it changes to shock and then, you know, uh, surprise and sort of what to do, you know, you get to see a lot of facial expressions in the animated version that you don't get to see because they so covered his face that all we could do, all he could do was speak with his eyes. And I felt like if they had taken a little more of that off, we might have seen a little more of who he was. It was a hard thing to make in a live action version. First of all, that snowball was the one moment I really ducked experiencing it in 3D because that snowball looked like it was coming right at me. But in the animated version, Bill Condon talked about this in an interview. The size of the beast changes in terms of his height. He can grow three feet and then shrink a foot from scene to scene yeah. when you've got him yeah. animated. But when you've got, you know, this beast in the live action version, it's much harder to do the facial expressions. Although in the credits, there was a beast stunt double for the dance scene. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I would love to have There's that on my resume. There's nothing worse than when they tell you, you know, you dance off, you know, you like suck as a dancer and you're not going to be able to dance in your movie. Well, There's nothing it's worse. It's one thing when you're jumping out of airplanes or something like that. It's another thing when you don't have, you can't do a two-step, you know? Well, it's amazing because when you think about these Broadway productions like Shrek and how many yeah. hours the actors spend every day getting into makeup and the costumes on a daily basis, I can't imagine being inside that beast costume. So what did you think of Kevin Klein? My dear Belle, you're so ahead of your time. This is a small village, and it's small-minded as well. But small also means safe. I love seeing him again. Why are we not seeing him more? I think he does a lot of live theater. He is very good at what he does, and he knows how to act a part without overplaying it or underplaying it, but making it just right. And he's so compelling on the screen. You you know, you really like him. Okay, and Stanley Tucci, okay, Uh when he shows up at the end, I thought, oh, my God, did you come right off the set of Hunger Games? (laughs) He was wearing the same outfit and the same hair, and I'm. I thought, oh my goodness, save a little money because 160 million isn't enough, and let's just bring Tucci in from the Hunger Games. See you uh, and your Huntress films. I know, can't help it, right? Mm-hmm. But I also think Stanley Tucci picks fun things to do, and good mm-hmm. for him. You know, good for him. As does Emma Thompson. I was so happy to hear her as I Mrs. Know. Potts. How lovely to make your acquaintance. Want to see me do a trick? I mean, she had very big shoes to fill taking on the Angela Lansbury role. I thought also, she did I, it beautifully. I love that the, her son's name is Chip, and the and there's a little chip in the in the tea, teapot. I mean, in the tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I just I loved it, loved it, loved it. There are some nice little uh, touches of humor, like the yeah. armoire when they call the armoire mi amore. And I thought, okay, that's very cute. Yeah. Ewan McGregor as Lumiere, Ian McKellen as Cogsworth. Look, a girl. Who said that? Hello. <gasps> you can talk. Hello, of course. It's all he ever does. And you know who else? 
else was in this playing Plumette was Gugu Mbatha-Raw, who we loved in Miss Sloane. Yes, I didn't even remember that, actually. Yes, you're absolutely right. Huh. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. But hearing Audra McDonald sing, I thought, you know, her talents were wasted on private practice. She should really just always get singing parts. She was very good. But, you know, that that opening scene where she, she, you know, she's amazing. Absolutely amazing. The youngest actor ever to win three Tonys. I mean, she's since gone on to win five, but yeah, huge singing talent. Yep. Okay, now we should probably talk a little bit about Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey playing the Beast. Have you really read every one of these books? <gasps> Some of them are in Greek. True as it can be. He was so covered. Again, I, I just think they should have lightened that load for him so we really could see who he was. So when he emerges at the end, there's no relationship between him and the Beast. I can't see the connection. And I think it's I think it's a fault. I do. More so than the people that were turned into furniture? I just don't think they mattered as much. You know, I mean, he... I wanted to see somebody standing there where you could, you know, like he should have had brown hair at least. Or make the Beast have blonde hair. I don't care. But, you know, I, it, it just, it was so alien to the Beast that the Beast was gone. And I wanted to hold on to him a little longer, even though with my feminist side showing, I shouldn't have wanted to at all. Emma Watson's line to him at the end when they were dancing did crack me up when she said, you know, any chance I could get you to grow a beard? <laughs> you know, I remember back in 2012, before he got killed off on Downton Abbey in a Shonda-like way, I might add, but... Back in 2012, I was blown away by his time management skills because he was finishing up on Downton Abbey. He was preparing for Broadway. He had three children, and he was a judge for the Man Booker Prize for literature, which meant that he had to read 148 novels in eight months. This is hmm. something else he shares with Emma Watson besides the fact that they are British and performers and, you know, have huge followings. It's their love for literature. I had no idea. He's the editor-at-large and co-founder of something called The Junket, which is a literary quarterly, and he loves to write, the same way Emma Watson loves to read. So he went to Cambridge University, where he was good friends with Rebecca Hall, who we talked about in the movie Christine. She was in Vicky Christine of Barcelona as well. Eddie Redmayne, and Tom Hiddleston. They were all in college together. So he started this, the junket, because his Cambridge friends and he, they wanted to encourage each other to keep writing. Right. Uh, you know, and she, by the way, writes also, and she has a book club. Yes, a huge online phenom called Our Shared Shelf. And you know, you know what they're reading now? Her first selection was Gloria Steinem's book, My Life on the Road. Well, she said that, you know, when they asked her who, who her big influences were, and everybody thought she was going to say, you know, Julia Roberts or whatever. And she said, Gloria Steinem started, mm -hmm. you know, she said she's very active in the United Nations with women's issues globally. But what the book club presently is reading all of the vagina monologues. She said her mother took her to the play when she was very young, and it was very powerful for her. I can't imagine how young she was. But at any rate, um, yeah, she's a huge reader, and she's a writer. She just said she hasn't shared any of it yet. I would love to read it. And when she went to see the final cut of Beauty and the Beast for the first time at a screening in London, she took along her mother and Gloria Steinem. 
Well, there you go. So, yeah, yeah, they've gotten very close. But you mentioned she's now an ambassador for the UN. Again, her time management skills, I think, are Olympic. But when she addressed the General Assembly of the UN in 2014, she got a standing ovation. Well, did you see the address? It's amazing. She, The poise with which she addressed them, the certainty, et cetera, which was why I was a little surprised that the topic of this movie was okay with her. <laughs> yeah. And she discussed it with Benicio del Toro. Um, and he said it was one of his favorite stories growing up. And she thought, you know, okay, I, I think I can sign on for this. But this new initiative through the UN called He for She, where the goal is to get men to co-sign right. on feminist issues. I mean, she's already brought in Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman and, you know, some of the big Hollywood types. But they said after she addressed the General Assembly, the UN women website just crashed. I mean, it was the media blitz that followed her following. I mean, it can't be overstated how massive it is. Yeah. She also, though, she did talk about her issues with the movie in in the Stockholm Syndrome. And here's what, you know, she said. She said that for her... Uh, Bell never gives in to him, always stands up to him when he says, come eat with me, she says no. That She felt that she never went under his power, quote, you know, and so she could live with the issues surrounding it. And that the Stockholm Syndrome, she did a lot of research around it before she took the role and determined that Stockholm Syndrome is when somebody relates too much to the captor, and she felt that that wasn't the case with Belle, and she was going to play Belle as always independently thinking and, you know, made a choice to stay versus, you know, uh, being held, you know, in in another way. So, I mean, I thought that was a little bit sort of self-serving, oh, that okay, that sort of makes sense, but but she says she did think it through and that those were her responses to herself when... She said, how can I stand up for uh, free women everywhere and then do this movie where a captive falls in love with her captor? She gets that there's an issue here, no question. She, she also takes on Gaston and just point blank says, I am never going to marry you. She's portrayed as being smarter than her father, certainly the smartest person in the village. She loves the Beast's library. Definitely a brain. No, you not know just she. You know she's not the problem. The problem is in the end she falls in love with the person who was her captor. Madame Gaston, his little wife. Oh. No, sir, not me. I guarantee. You. I I guess it was not so hard for me to swallow, perhaps because of recently watching both The Crown that we reviewed and A Royal Night Out, where in my mind it's this theme of a European castle and the person inside the castle is also held captive where Queen Elizabeth II said she can't really roam free. I mean, it's not like the beast was allowed off the grounds, right? Because I know he was allowed to fight the wolves, but it's not as though he could accompany her back to her village, right? I think, I think the, well, I think the answer to that would be Queen Elizabeth could walk away from the crown if she chose. She was not locked in a room. And Belle is locked in her room and unable to get out. Well, Lumiere and everyone gives her the run of the whole castle. She can't leave. You know, so, but I don't know if the subliminal message is in there or not, you know. But I do think that there are differences between, you know, comparing Queen Elizabeth, who has total freedom to go wherever she wants, and Belle, who was locked in a room. In this remake, they took great pains to tell us that he'd actually been a good guy, and then his mother died, and then his father turned him into a bad guy, for which he was punished, so he's not allowed to leave the castle either. That's when the last petal falls. 
The Nastel remains a beast forever. And we become antiques. Emma Watson has been so famous for so long, she can't go to busy places. She's so swarmed by people asking for selfies and photos, and she can't just step out and be public. And she said, nor can she date anyone without that person coming under the media scrutiny, where she is just so diligent in terms of preserving the independence and freedom of whoever she dates. She said something very interesting in an article where she said she had read about Elizabeth Taylor, who was also a famous actress already when she was quite young. And she said that she read that Elizabeth Taylor experienced her first kiss on screen. She was doing it for a movie role. And Emma Watson said, you know, I remember thinking, oh, I don't want that to be me. It was Mickey Rooney, as I I recall, yeah. And she said, you know, I don't want that to be me, where some of these big moments in my life are really happening to someone else. You know, me in a role playing someone else. I kind of want to experience things for myself, um, just as my own person. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to be Emma Watson, where you can't just step outside. Tom Hanks has said many times, you know, I chose this life. No one chose it for me. Well, I mean, Emma Watson was nine when she became so famous. And I know she's never, I've never read an interview where she's complained about it, but it is the repercussions of having won the lottery, so to speak, so young. Mm. She will be recognized Mm. for the rest of her life, wherever she goes. But speaking of Tom Hanks, I'm sure you saw... They're doing another adaptation of a Dave Eggers novel, The Circle, and we reviewed Hologram for the King, which was the Dave Eggers novel starring Tom Hanks, and The Circle will star both Tom Hanks and Emma Watson. You know, know, I'm not a lover of Tom Hanks the way others are, and I feel like he casts himself in these movies that he sort of produces, owns, or buys, or whatever, when he's miscast. I feel like in the Da Vinci Code series, he he didn't belong in that role, and... It's funny, I just worry about him once again putting himself in a position where he might um, be interesting to see. When is it coming out? Do you know? April 28th. You know, Ah, Emma Watson, she has made some really interesting choices when it comes to the roles she's played. I loved her in The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which we've mentioned before, the 2012 film with Logan Lerman. Stephen Jabosky did that film, and he wrote the screenplay to this remake of Beauty and huh. the Beast. Well, they all, you know, we, we remember we've talked about this before where people just end up working together over and over again because it works, you yeah, know? When you find your peeps, I would stick with them. Yeah. Something that I find really interesting is how Alan Menken had to redo the music for Beauty and the Beast. It's a challenging thing to do when you've already made iconic music in the animated version. I want to play a little clip here of Alan Menken talking about this. He is such a talent when it comes to composing music, playing the piano. And even last year, he was commissioned to do 55 songs for a TV show. Yeah, well, there you go. The biggest excitement is in the moment of creation. Um, that's where it all culminates. It's that moment where I sit down, you planned out, you know, what are the new elements you want to add? How, you know, and, and have all the discussions with my collaborator, and then I write the song. When I'm writing a new musical, that's incredibly exciting because then I'm, I'm really conceiving a concept of how are we going to tell this new story or this old story, but with a new, a new perspective because it's a musical now. What musical style that I haven't worked with before am I going to use? And how do I bring this to life? That's exciting. Whether it's animated, whether it's stage, whether it's film, whether it's television, whether it's an album. If it's a song in a dramatic context, it's pretty much 
same process. I can't say any one is my most favorite part, but I'll... Here's a, he a big team behind him, and he gives them a lot of room to make, you know, their own messages really strong in it. So um, amazing, amazing, amazing songwriter. Mm-hmm. True as it can be. If you want to stay on after we turn off the microphones, I'll be happy to sing the rest of the song for you, Oto. <laughs> that is so sweet, although I'm beginning to feel like you're holding me prisoner. I don't, I don't want to experience any Stockholm Syndrome. Okay, bye. Song as old as rhyme, beauty.